You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcai. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcai and Izcah. Now Sarah was barren, and she had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they had come to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Not unusual for me to be reading a number of books at the same time, but I was recently surprised by a book I picked up at a yard sale. Uh, a thin book, and there were two things that attracted my attention to it. Uh, some of you who know me will know. The first one was it was by the Banner of Truth. Uh, so anytime I see a book by the Banner of Truth, I'm on it. But then the second was I opened up the book, and the cover said this about the author. Uh, the author is Donald MacDonald, a 20th century uh, Scottish pastor. But, but in the little biography it said of him, it said this. He was a man who saw the whole of life in focus because his eyes were fixed on Christ. I thought, wow, that's a book I gotta read. Well, the book is called Christian Experience, and the title may deceive you. He's not talking about just personal experiences, things that have happened to him, but in a sense, teachings and doctrines that are intrinsic to the Christian life. And as I've been making my way through the book here and there, I began to think about each of these different experiences he mentions and how they are so relevant to each of us as we proclaim Christ. 
And so we're going to spend some time over the next couple of weeks looking at some of these experiences, but unfolding them and digging a little deeper into them. But I want to begin this Sunday with what McDonald begins his book with, The Call of God. What does it mean to speak about the call of God and to have faith in God? Even as Tony prayed, the word faith, we, we can all probably think of the canned definition from Hebrews 11, you know, evidence of things not seen, but certain. Yeah, but what, what does that really mean? And what does genuine faith look like and should look like in your life and in mine? And how is that kind of faith developed and cultivated throughout the different seasons of life? So I'm hoping we will answer those two questions by this glimpse into Genesis 11 and 12, where you have the calling of Abram, uh, who later will be called Abraham. Uh, so if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Genesis 11. And Genesis 11 and 12 are, in many ways, a, a turning point in the book of Genesis. Um, you may have noticed as we were reading from Genesis 11, 27 through chapter 12, verse 9, that that's all about the calling of Abram. But yet, don't forget, that calling is very different from how Genesis 11 begins. Genesis 11 begins with the Tower of Babel, with, with man refusing to disperse and wanting to come together and make a name for himself, build a city that proclaims the pride and arrogance of mankind over God. And yet you get to the second half of the chapter and we're talking about, well, here's God's program. Here's God's design to build a city unlike any other city that will not proclaim the glory of man, but proclaim the glory of God. Our meditation, all of the reading this morning centered on this issue of faith, faith in God. And how does the faith of God relate to the call of God? So as you'll notice in Genesis 11, we have this very unique experience of Abram. God calls him and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Now, you might be reading that thinking, that, that's great. That's, that's Abram. That, that's not me. God's not calling some kind of nation out of me, even though you may take pride in the number of grandchildren you have. God's not calling a nation out of you. So how does this at all relate? Well, I think it's both unique and very relevant. Yes, Abram's calling in many ways was unique. It would be the basis of what we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant and how that would be unfolded through the pages of Scripture to lead us to the new covenant. But there's another aspect where the calling of God on Abraham is very relevant to each of us as believers. That God has called us and set us apart to honor and glorify him where he has put us in this life. So with that being said, let me draw your attention to Genesis 12 and verse 1 and then verse 7. And you'll notice two phrases here that when you speak of the calling of God, the emphasis is always on the initiation of God. Verse 1 says, the Lord said to Abram. And then verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram. So when we consider the call of God, 
connect with that, the call of God is always a work of God. That's the first building block in this discussion. The call of God is always a work of God. You don't have Abram initiating this, him saying, I've been thinking about it, and you know what, God, uh, you could really use me. So I'm, I'm, I'm here I am. But it's, it's God who speaks. And it's God who appears to Abram. So when we come to this discussion of the call of God is a work of God, I'm using the word call here as this efficacious summons with a specific result that will happen. When, when God calls in this way, the result is certain. Now you'll find in the New Testament, there is a use of calling in two different dimensions. So all of you sitting here this morning, you can say in one sense, you're called because you're all hearing the same message. Assuming you're paying attention, uh, you're all hearing the same words. You're looking at the same scripture. So in that sense, the call of God, the word of God is going out to you in a very general sense. We're all hearing it. But the New Testament also clarifies you can speak of the call as being an inward change that's the result of the work of God. In other words, those who take what is heard and apply it and live it out, those are the ones that are truly inwardly called. They're, they're transformed by the message, which even though they are responding to it in obedience, that very obedience is evidence of the work of God, of his initiation in his spirit, through his Holy Spirit in us. And this would explain what Jesus meant in the Gospel of Matthew when he said, well, many are called or invited, but few are chosen. Jesus was kind of clarifying here, yes, the, the message is to go out to everyone. But in that going out, those whom God initiates, who God moves on and draws to himself, those are the ones who have been efficaciously summoned. Now, you may be running ahead of me and thinking, yeah, but what about doesn't everybody deserve a chance? And that's a great theological discussion. Not that we want to branch off into that, maybe right now, but I have a simple answer. We've already all been given a chance in Adam. Adam represented us. And because he failed, we all failed. So we had, quote unquote, our chance, our opportunity. And if for some reason that doesn't sit well with you and you're like, well, I still don't think that's fair. Are, are you pretty upset that Christ died without asking you about that? That he said, I'm, I'm going to die for your sins. We like that part. Well, if he acted as a representative in that sense, then you have to accept in God's plan, Adam acted as a representative for each one of us. So when we think of the call of God as a work of God, notice in Genesis 12 that it says in verse 1 again, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. As we're reading that, I think our natural tendency would be this would be great if the last part of this told him exactly where that land was. Notice how it's left. Leave all these things. I'll, I'll show you. And 
as you go through the book of Genesis hereafter, Abram and then Abraham is constantly moving. Why? Because God hasn't specifically said to him where that land is. So much so that when his wife dies, he has to purchase land to bury her. Because he doesn't own any land. He doesn't have anything. He doesn't have a city like the people in the Tower of Babel were seeking to do. And yet God has called him. Turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 7. Because the way it's written in Genesis, it, it would almost seem to imply that Moses, who's the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books, is saying that God spoke to Abram once he was in Haran. Like he was in Ur of the Chaldees, then moved to Haran, settled there. And then in Haran, God said, Abram, I want you to leave your country, your people, your household, and do this. But if you look at Acts chapter 7, we see that there's, there's not a contradiction here in Scripture, but Moses in Genesis is giving you a very broad overview. He's not so much focusing on chronologically when did God first call Abram. But if you look at Acts 7, verses 1 and 2, or excuse me, verses 2 and 3, we come upon Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. So remember, Stephen's often called the first official martyr of the Christian church. So he's explaining Jewish history to these Jewish experts to kind of say to them, in essence, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament spoke of. But notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. This is Stephen speaking. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Here you have this reminder that although you could argue God's call, God's efficacious summons was a part of his eternal counsel before creation even came into play, that God was calling Abraham even before what Genesis tells us when he was in Haran. So when he was in Mesopotamia, God had already said, Abram, this is what I'm calling you to do. Now, keep that little detail in mind when we come back to, well, how does God develop genuine transforming faith in those he has called? But that sort of fills out that little detail. Return with me now to Genesis chapters 11 and 12. And we quickly assess that based on Old and New Testament teaching, it's not wrong to refer to Christians as being sons and daughters of Abraham. That we understand that covenant was unique to Abram, but yet in fact contained in seed what Jesus Christ came to do in the new covenant. And so we can say we're sons and daughters of Abraham. So there's a common link that this covenant with Abraham was by sovereign grace. And I'll show you that in a minute, just like our relationship with God is based on sovereign grace. We are saved by grace, not by works. So look at Genesis chapter 11 and verse 31. Uh, we're introduced to Terah, Terah, who is the father of Abraham. And it simply says, Terah took his son Abram 
his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and the daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son of Abram, and together they set out for Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, very interesting as you're thinking of this being a work of God. Tehran's goal here, and it doesn't mention anything about his godliness. In fact, we know from other places in Scripture, Ur the Chaldeans was a very ungodly place. Uh, it's noted for its worship of the moon god, a, a pagan place. In fact, in the book of Joshua, it says Tehran, who is the father of Abram and all his family, were worshipers of idols. So if you were thinking, well, God called Abram because he was such a great guy and he came from such a religious family, that just shoots holes in this. If there were any reason to not pick or not work through Tehran or Abram, those would have been the reasons. They came from pagan backgrounds, pagan surroundings. And yet God's already moving because notice he moves Abram through his father. And yet we were told in Acts 7, God had already called Abram when he was living in Mesopotamia. How fully Abram had grasped that, we're not sure. But notice how God in his sovereignty and providence is going to move him through the actions here of his father. And his father is heading in that direction. They leave Ur the Chaldeans, but they end up settling in Haran. Very interesting when you start to consider the parallel to this when you think of, well, how has God worked to call you and me in Christ Jesus? And we're all from different places. Many of us have relocated to New England. We've seen the light. Uh, but we, we understand that we come from many different backgrounds, but we all have something in common. When God called us, we were objects of his wrath. We were sinners. We, we hated God. We, we didn't want to turn to him initially on our own. We did not initiate that. Now, it is true, you may be saying, but, but I did respond in faith. I prayed, and I, I know that. You're exactly right. But that was because the call of God is a work of God that he prompted. He changed your heart so you could respond in believing faith. So the first foundational stone that's in place here is the call of God is always a work of God. But secondly, I want to add to that, the call of God is a continuous work of God. And I, in other words, I'm broadening this out. We shouldn't think the call is just one event that happened somewhere in the past. Nor should we think the call implies, well, that's what happens to pastors. You know, they get the, the call. We didn't get the call, but they got the call. Well, no, according to Scripture, we're all called in Christ Jesus. We're all set apart to serve him and obey him. Now, you can argue on one level, Abraham and Abram's calling happens at a definitive moment. I mean, Genesis 12 is a defining moment, and that's going to be further explained as you get to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. 
But I want you to think for a moment how that faith was developed in Abram's life. God calls him, but now how once he calls him, how is that calling continuously being developed and worked out? Because if I can see how it's worked out in Abram's life, I can make the logical connection. Then how does God work that out in me? How does God work it out in your life if you know Christ? Well, consider just for a moment the story of Abraham. If you look at Genesis 12 and you go a little bit further, you notice what happens in the next part of Genesis 12? Abram goes off to Egypt and he kind of freaks out here. And he's, you know, tells Sarah, look, you're, you're going to have to tell them you're my sister. Now, here, here was this example of God saying, I'm calling you, you know, you're mine, my faith, put your faith in me. And, and then this kind of little flip-flop. And that's not unusual as you read, not just of Abraham's life, but I think the life of the saints throughout the Old and New Testament. But thinking of the story of Abraham, consider these things. One-fourth of the book of Genesis is devoted to the life of Abraham. Which tells us he's not just a figure of faith, but, but he's, he's a, an object lesson to us. There, there's significance here to the life of Abraham. Flip the page to the New Testament, you have over 40 different references in the New Testament to Abraham. And when you get to Hebrews 11, which you read earlier, Abraham has the most space devoted to an individual commending him for his faith. That he, he pursued these promises that you see in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, and he never saw them fully fulfilled in his life. And that's what Hebrews is referring to when it says he, he was progressing toward a city like many others he, he'd never seen. He never saw the fulfillment of this in his own life. But yet with certainty, he responded to the call of God. But how did God work out that kind of faith in his life? Obviously it didn't happen overnight. Genesis 12, 10 is a reminder but how were the steps taking place? Well, I'd like to present maybe some ways we can see that in our own life. Notice I mentioned in Genesis 11 and verse 31 that God works by his providence in our life. It's not always getting us sometimes from step A to C, but maybe there's other steps in between that have to happen. Because notice with this movement of his father, they end up settling in Haran. Now, we don't know how long they settled in Tehran. You can make the case, or excuse me, in Haran. We can make the case that it may not have been that long because Terah seems quite elderly when they make this transition. But yeah, you could look at this and say, this is kind of an interruption. You know, why does this happen? Could this have been a means of temptation? to leave one place and think you've surrendered enough already and done enough for God? Is it possible that we can find Christians, and maybe at times we are one of them, who, who kind of feel like, God, I've done enough already. Yeah, I've, I've surrendered enough. 
I'm content to stop in Haran. That's good enough for me. But then you go on and notice verse 1 of chapter 12, which we read. The, the building intensity of what he's calling Abram to do. Because you move from sort of less intimate to more and more intimate, more sacrificial things. I want you to leave your country. I think we'd be looking at this sometimes almost as if, well, let me check off or pick here. You know, leave the country. All right, that's hard, but I can do that. Well, I want you to also leave your people. Leave all your means of security. In an ancient world, think of how important community is. I want you to pick up and move. I don't want you to just leave your country and leave your people. I want you to leave your father's household. Move out of your comfort zone. When you put it that way, you start to say, wow, this is, this is going to be hurtful. This is difficult. This is a hard thing. And it's not a lesson one learns overnight, but throughout their life as they learn to trust and depend on God. Now, I reference that in verses 2 and 3, you have a series of six promises. Those promises are great. But kind of remind yourself, Abram is looking at this and he's doing this based on the certainty of God's word. Because notice it says, I will make you into a great nation. Imagine if you said to Abram, Abram, just open your eyes and look around you. Do you really think this is going to happen? You know, you're, you're this little group of nomadic, loosely grouped together tribes. And, and you're going to be greater than the Canaanites. Greater than all these deeply settled kingdoms that are already out in the world around you. It's interesting, he says, I will make you, not only will I make your name great, but as I mentioned, I will, I will make you a nation. Now, if you think about it, typically in the Old Testament, the word nation refers to Gentiles. And that's the word that is used here that you would use to describe a Gentile nation. In other words, emphasizing a, a territory, a government, a, an administration. Not like I'm going to make you a close-knit community, but I'm going to make you into a kingdom, a defined kingdom, a place where I will reign. And you can go through those promises, and they're amazing promises, but keep in mind, if Abram physically just opened his eyes here, would any of this look like it could become a reality? I mean, do you ever question, how can God use you in your place in life? We're kind of wondering, yeah, I know he wants to use me, but gee, can he really? But then you go on to verses 5 through 8. And remember, God said, I will show you the place. But you're going to have to walk by faith, step by step, and I'll just direct you. But he doesn't come right out and say, here's where we're going. Yeah, you're going to land a Canaan, but what does that mean? But you notice in verses 5 through 8, a couple of things that are mentioned. First of all, he took his wife, Sarah. And you may say, that's great. He's a husband, so he better take his wife with him. But, but remember what you're told in the previous chapter. Sarah was barren. Abram's an old man. 
God's going to make a great nation out of them. How could that possibly be? But yet, he's going to take his wife, Sarah, and Lot. But then notice something he does. In this progression of trusting God, Abram stops in different places, and he builds a what? Altar. Why does he do that? He's showing his trust, his worship, his obedience to God. And you want to think of these worships, or, uh, these altars are not like tents where he sets up a temporary dwelling, stays there until God says, all right, moving on, I'll show you the place. These altars remain there. In other words, you, you almost get the picture, here's little scattered visual reminders of Abram's trust and obedience to God. Where when these are going to be come upon by other people, they should be a visual aid to say, why is that there? Oh, yeah, Abraham, you know that guy trusted in God's promises. And now you start, I think, to piece together. How does God develop the call of God in our lives? Through small steps of obedience to his word and his will where you're walking by faith, trusting in God in small decisions in your life, in smaller areas of obedience. Not always just thinking, when's the big picture, the big obedience going to come, but what about the small steps? And clearly, as you read this, you're reminded God works through trials and difficulties. This was not going to be an easy walk in Abram's life. He would go into lands where there's already pagan powers in place. He would face fears, threats that were very real. And in a sense, what God was saying to him is, Abram, when that happens, close your eyes. See him who is invisible. Now we would have a tendency to want to say the opposite. Open your eyes. Look at look what's going on. Maybe sometimes we do better to close our eyes. I'm not saying here to be naive or anything like that, but, but to trust in the one who has called you. And again, a reminder here in this, this faith is not developed overnight, but it's developed through a consistent walk, response of worship and obedience. As important as this is in Old Testament history, it is very evident that the call of Abraham points us to one even greater, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because you're reading this, you know that those promises in verses 2 and 3 really are only going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ fully. That, that he will be the one who will set up an everlasting kingdom that he will be the one whose name will be great, who every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And then when he says here, that those who bless you will bless me, I will bless those who curse you, I will curse. Think of Jesus' words when he said, if they give you a cup of cold water in my name, who are they doing it to? Me. And so you see this fulfillment 
that awaits ultimately Jesus Christ. No wonder in the Gospel of John you have Jesus talking to the Jews who are accusing him first of being a Samaritan, but then accusing him of being demon-possessed. And Jesus says, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Even though you claim Abraham is your father, you don't understand that Abraham desired to see this day, to see me. In other words, Abram was a picture, a foreshadowing of ultimately the work and person of Jesus Christ. So intrinsic to the Christian experience is knowing what it means to talk about being called of God and having faith in God. If you read the pastoral epistle, which goes out each week, uh, usually on Wednesday morning, you'll, you'll notice it's signed off and there's an expression I use at the end. Live up to your calling. You may have wondered, well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Worship God every day. Strive to be obedient to him and realize that that work is developed through small steps of obedience consistent confession of sin, and ultimately always, as Donald McDonald taught us, to look at the whole of life in clear focus because our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, in a world that is riddled with distraction, keep us focused on the one who has called us. In Jesus' name. Amen.